Hey, Dan, here you go. Ooh, and what have we got here? Party hat, streamers, and... That's the spirit. Happy Indigenous Peoples Day. Oh, yeah, that's right. It's June 21st. Happy Indigenous People Day to you, Nagan. Hey, aren't you going to put on some of this party stuff, too? I mean, aren't we supposed to be celebrating together? Uh, in fact, I celebrate every day just by being alive. Okay, that's an excellent point, but you're wearing a Batman shirt. Yes, and <clears throat> I'm Indigenous. <laughs> okay, but, you know, isn't this the day that's supposed to be about education, honoring treaties, recognizing that Manitoba was founded by Indigenous communities, contributions by leaders like Louis Rial and Chief Peguis? You know, how about the fact that some of the most exciting economic projects in Winnipeg's future will be created and operated by Indigenous peoples? Yeah, 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 yeah. It's all that and more. But, you know, June 21st, it's an important day. It's just that there's lots of other days to wear party hats and use streamers and talk about Indigenous communities, too. So you're saying I should wear this party stuff every day, then? Uh, not quite. But you could wear this Superman shirt alongside my Batman one. Whoa, 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 hang on. Isn't the story of Superman that he was born in a far-off land and was sent to Earth to save the local people who can't save themselves? And isn't the story about Batman that he's a millionaire who throws poor and marginalized people in prison while maintaining the status quo in society? I don't, I don't like this dress-up game anymore. Put that party hat back on, Dan. All right. The Winnipeg Free Press proudly presents, in partnership with CJNU 93.7 FM, Megan and the Lone Ranger. Here are your hosts, Megan Sinclair and Dan the Lone Ranger Let. Welcome back, everybody, as the, uh, the intro to today's episode of Megan and the Lone Ranger indicates we are recording this on June the 21st. Indigenous Peoples Day. Indigenous Peoples Day. Apparently a day for, you know, you got to go to party stuff for the dollar store and, you know, or not. Or not. <laughs> go, to, uh, uh, go to an education session is really yeah. So, and tell me honestly, if I show up at the Forks for National Indigenous Day wearing a pointy party hat, um, what's the over-under on me getting out of the Forks live? Well, first off, <laughs> if you go today, which is actually National Indigenous Peoples Day, which is a Wednesday, uh, and nobody will be there because the uh, Aboriginal Day Live, the kind of infamous mm -hmm. that was run by APTN, they do it on the Saturday before, which kind of defeats the purpose. But anyways, they do it because they want to guarantee an event. Mm -hmm. And what what's happened is, and I think people might have noticed this, or maybe you haven't noticed this, but I'll point it out, is... Because the government was about three, four years ago, was in this position of where do we put national mm -hmm. uh, the residential school survivor day or in shirt day. Uh, there was a lot of talk of putting that on June 21st. They decided to put it September 30th. And that has taken a lot of the energy out of June 21st. Of course, that's a famous day that was selected in 1990. It's been going now for 33 years. Uh, of people recognizing kind of indigenous contributions to the country. Not a lot of people recognize that day anymore. Uh, there's kind of a bunch of memes on social media and so on, but generally all of the energy of the country focuses on orange shirt day on September 30th. Yeah, no, it's, I mean, 
Uh, I will say, uh, like, I know that there's, I mean, the, the summer solstice uh, is a, an, an important yeah. day. Um, well, I mean, really, it's a it's an important day for Indigenous people. Uh, you know, other than the fact, and this is true, it's my wedding anniversary. Uh, so that we makes it, in, it that way. We, yeah. we planned it that way. Yeah. We said that is the day. That is the day of growth. It's also the longest day of the year. That, well, that, that's the big joke uh, between uh, my lovely wife and I is that we were married on the longest day of the year. And then we allow people to draw their own conclusions from that. So. <laughs> no, well, but it, yeah, but it, it is like, I, so June, June 21st, but it is true that um, holidays or special days that are like the second Monday of such and such a month or the third Saturday or whatever tend to accumulate more attention. Like they get, they get more attention, more participation. So, you know, it's, but when you pick a date in the calendar, then you're kind of all over, you know, you run the risk of not being a date, not being a thing. There's an interesting split that's happened. June 21st is now uh, a lot of indigenous peoples are using that for, their own kind of ceremony, the Powell circuits in full energy right now. So if you look on as my social media as a litmus test, there's a lot of really important ceremonies taking place on the 21st. Uh, and so it's becoming more of an indigenous focused day. Uh, and the government or Canada or society is really focused a lot on September 30th. Good, bad, great, ugly. And that's the kind of way that things are rolling out. And, and, and talk, about, talk about rolling out because it's the federal government has found another way of right. recognizing, <laughs> you know, and I'm just, you know, just remember there were good intentions behind all of this, right? So, Well, I mean, the, the, I guess the, the, you know, let, what happens is, is that there's often they save these kinds of days for rather important or uh, not so important events. Uh, there was an announcement in Ottawa that there will be a new $2 commemorative toonie coin. Uh, as once again, the loonie is under threat. I'm sure there's going to be protests across the country uh, because uh, Indigenous peoples are apparently taking over the toonie. And there will be, uh, you will see rolling out any day now, uh, the new $2 commemorative coin. Uh, it's actually quite beautiful. It's, it's uh, really of, beautiful. Yeah. Lots of colors and yeah, it's, it's amazing. It, it It's the creation of three indigenous artists, all female representing first nations, Inuit and Métis people, uh, you know, just, it's a really nice coin, but um, I'm sure people will, uh, will remember this indigenous people's day forever because of the creation of this. <laughs> that's my, uh, that's my glass half full way of seeing. And on that note. Yeah, no, on that note, uh, on to uh, harder news. So um, you and I found a similar fascination in the ongoing story of what appears to be the ritual sacrifice of a federal cabinet minister uh, for a story of unusual proportions and, and, configuration so why don't you why don't you give us the background on yeah uh, yeah there is two forces when it comes to justice in the country there is correctional services canada who upon someone being found guilty in a federal prison uh they are sent there correctional services canada makes determinations on where they will go uh what facility they will head to what kind of services they'll be undergoing during their time in prison 
And then there's this other part of the justice system, which is the Department of Justice federally, uh, which is uh, generally the justice minister makes the decision uh, of, you know, big macro decisions across the country. And those two worlds are not supposed to come together. Uh, That's not the way the system works. But uh, when you get a prisoner uh, with the kind of legacy that Paul Bernardo, famous serial killer, of young women. Uh, everyone in Canada has heard of, uh, there was a really great story that was coming out from uh, the Toronto Star. Uh, everybody knows two prisoners in the country, Paul Bernardo, and Robert Picton. And those two individuals are kind of the ways in which Canada has rolled out over time. So you can't really say either one of those names in any way without a real visceral response from Canadians. And so- right. When news came out that Paul Bernardo had been transferred from a maximum security prison to a medium security prison, the uh, media, a lot driven by CBC and the Globe and Mail and so on, uh, went right to Justice Minister uh, Minasino and said, what the heck's going on? When did you know this is happening? Uh, uh, Of course, sorry, Public Safety Minister uh, Marco Mendocino. And... And then he said, first off, two things. One is, I don't know. I didn't know this was going to happen. And second is, this is terrible that this is happening. Both of those things have led to a whole bunch of questions of who knew what, where. Uh, It seems like that would be a major public relations nightmare. And second is, is that the minister should not be making comments on decisions on Correctional Services Canada. Okay, so like, as you well know, um, criminal justice, and and particularly in the context of wrongful convictions. But I've spent my entire career studying um, the machinations of the the, uh, criminal justice system in this country and the prison system. I've been to more prisons in this country than I um, care to really fully disclose. Um, And, um, you know, so here's, first of all, my general take. Number one is that, um, yeah, like Paul Bernardo is a lightning rod. Um, and, you know, he's he has been classified as a dangerous offender. Theoretically, could he get out of prison at some point? Yes. The experience, the reality is that once you're declared a dangerous offender, you typically, that is the only time in the Canadian correctional system where you can be fairly confident that you will spend the rest of your natural life in prison. Um, you know, it, it's... It, 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 Bernardo is such a dark and infamous figure that anything that attaches to his name is likely to be caught up in the maelstrom of politics and public opinion and whatever. So, okay, so Mendocino, you're right. Mendocino said, I don't, I didn't know this was happening. Fact is, the Correctional Service does not consult nor notify uh, federal cabinet ministers about decisions it makes on the movement of prisoners. And for a very good reason. Uh, there is no legal or administrative way for Mendocino to influence the outcome of these things, uh, of, of a decision to transfer. Okay, fair enough. Should he have known that it was going to happen? At the very least, so he could have figured out something better to say. Some, yeah, Some strategy think, yeah. or some kind of response. And yeah. the, the, what the wrinkle in that story is, is that the Prime Minister's office apparently knew that this was coming three months ago, which mm-hmm. tells you that the prime minister's office seems to be controlling more information when it comes to public safety, justice, Paul Bernardo, than Marco Mendocino's office. Right. And so that tells you that 
there is a kind of micromanagement in the prime minister's office mm-hmm. that is eerily reminiscent of what people criticized about Stephen Harper, which is that Stephen Harper controlled, micromanaged his own government. Yeah. Trudeau said that he would be different. Seems like the evidence of this would be that he's controlling a lot of information. Yeah. The the second uh, thing that Mendocino said, and which I think sealed his fate, and as we speak right now, there are reports circulating in the national media that um, Trudeau, uh, Prime Minister Trudeau is going to trigger a cabinet shuffle over the summer and that he's either going to kick Mendocino out of cabinet uh, altogether or move him to uh, a less contentious portfolio. I think, I, I mean, I can't really support that decision because the minister in this case didn't really do anything wrong. Um, the, at the, at the core of the story is a profound misunderstanding, um, the, about me, what medium security is in the Canadian penal system. And, you know, like, it's like, I don't think there's any good excuse for any national media organization not to understand that medium security is not what it has been implied. It is not less secure than a maximum security prison, maximum and super max prisons and units within prisons are really places where prisoners can be kept away from other prisoners, away, you know, away from other members, like people who are resident of the, of the super max or max facility, but only for a short period of time. It's not meant to be the, the last place that they ever go. A medium security prison in proper context, what you would think of is your normal lock secure 40 foot high stone walls, um, you know, kind of prison. I've been in four different medium security prisons, and I can tell you that they are exactly what you would want them to be. If you're big on crime and punishment, they are awful, you know, frightening, often medieval looking places. So, and, and this, you know, so I think in, in the rush to condemn uh, Marco Mendocino, how could the national media not include that that important bit of information or or like educate the public on what medium and maximum is uh because you know the fact is i think canadians hear the word medium they think this is shangri-la or or you know i think back to the story uh involving the murders in saskatchewan and Mm -hmm. the ways in which uh the media our colleagues and lots of them who I otherwise respect um, classify what indigenous run facilities are when it comes mm-hmm. to the justice system as kinds of these um, Shangri-La vacation spots that somehow are not on par with other correctional facilities across the country. Uh, when indigenous peoples are running those facilities, they are ethical and they have guidelines and policies and in many cases are look very similar to prisons, but are being run in not such a way that is so retributive or, or based yeah. in violence. Um, violence that violence that tr- addresses other violence just turns out more violence. Yeah. That yeah. Indigenous peoples have been trying yeah. to do that for years. And so I'm thinking about the ways in which we don't tell a good story of prisons in this country generally. Yeah, no, you no, you're right. The uh as soon as this story started raging too, I was contacted by I have many, many sources in the federal correctional system, in law enforcement, in in criminal justice, 
And a number of people made the same observation, which is like, even though Paul Bernardo uh, is going to a security with a slightly lower secure or a prison with a slightly lower security classification, because of the kind of crimes that he committed, he uh, raped and molested and murdered teenage girls. Because of that, he is never destined to move freely among the general population of any prison. He would be, he is technically known in the uh, in prison culture as a Skinner. And the end result is that he will be under constant threat uh, uh, to be uh, harmed or possibly killed by other prisoners. And, you know, although I, I think any smart prison, maximum, minimum, medium, or yeah. any prison would not include him in the general population. Uh, but in this case, if he were to be involved with the general population, he's actually in more danger now. Well, there's the pound of flesh. They they may get it. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. You, if you really, really want the world to be rid of Paul Bernardo, you should want him transferred to Gen Pop and a medium security prison. And, and then unfortunately uh, the normal natural course of, uh, of, of culture there will take care of it. Uh, But, you know, today, um, we are not, uh, our future interview uh, could not be really far farther from the topics that we've been <laughs> I feel, discussing. I feel we may get a, we may get a email from Elizabeth going, what a lead in to my interview. What WTF, Nikon and Dan. Um, so anyways, why don't you, we've partly revealed, we've done partly done the reveal. Why don't you do the rest uh, of the reveal? Well, we are very privileged to have, uh, you know, a longstanding parliamentarian, someone with a, uh, a resume that almost speaks for itself. I think every Canadian knows the name Elizabeth May. Uh, while born in Connecticut, uh, has now become a major force in Canadian politics as a Canadian, uh, has been involved with the Sierra Club and and national environmental organizations. To list them all would take us for forever to do so. But of course, is best known for running the Green Party of Canada before and then has now currently uh, taken back the leadership as a co-leader and uh, was gracious enough to spend some time with us talking about uh, environmentalism, talking about the future of the Green Party, the past of the Green Party, rather controversially, and then what was her plans going forward as the leader. We also got into residential school denialism a little bit, and we also got into uh, other conversations around her own history of politics and a really interesting story of you following her on the campaign trail. Yes, and uh, and uh, Elizabeth and I uh, share the distinction of having both been thrown out uh, off the grounds of a hospital in uh, near Victoria. Uh, we, we, we were both standing outside the hospital and we were both politely asked to leave. And then I had to do my interview with her standing on the side of a busy highway. So, you know, she's, she's a good egg, you know, anybody, any politician who will stand on the side of a busy highway and do an interview is, is okay in my books. (laughs) So without further ado, uh, let's get to our feature interview uh, with federal green party leader, Elizabeth May. 
We're very honored to have uh, a good friend and uh, colleague, someone who's worked for a very long period of time in some very important issues. In 2011, uh, was voted as the first Green Party candidate to the House of Commons, uh, representing the can- the constituents of Saanich Gulf Islands. And in 2006, of course, just before that, five years before that, was elected leader of the Green Party of Canada until 2019, uh, has written eight books, and uh, been an advocate for environmental issues across the country, uh, and is now just recently returned to being a co-leader in the Green Party. Uh, Welcome to the podcast, Elizabeth May. Thank you so much, Nagan, and thank you, Dan. It's, uh, I'm I'm really thrilled to be able to join you in a podcast. Well, and it's, uh, I should say, uh, because like, I have the best origin story with Elizabeth, because I went out uh, (laughs) to her writing in 2011, Uh, and did a feature story on her, um, you know, as she was just beginning her campaign. And uh, in the course of following her around in one day, uh, we, uh, well, Elizabeth and her campaign had planned to do a little handshaking and campaigning at a local hospital. Um, And so we all got dropped off by the vehicle in, you know, down this long driveway in front of the hospital. And Elizabeth was just starting to approach people there when somebody from the hospital ran out and said, you can't do that here and uh, kicked us off the property. And, uh, but it was also like, I don't know, half a kilometer back to the road. (laughs) So we walked all the way back to the road and then it was like a really busy road and stood on the side of this like two lane highway and, uh, and did a lovely interview. So, you know, when people talk about politicians who have poise under stress and pressure, that's the story I tell them, you know, so. It's it's as good as the story that uh, the McLean's uh, reporter could have told about the, my waiting at the Toronto Pride Parade in the <laughs> staging area for an hour and a half with my 14-year-old daughter, and I had just I was waiting for hip replacement so I couldn't move and I was parked in a rickshaw among a group called totally naked Toronto men um and <laughs> you can't buy advertising like that uh, in oh, politics man. you know like yo the McLean's guy said you're really calm for a mom stuck in this particular situation with anyway my, my daughter was not traumatized Oh well, uh, that, that's like, and you weren't traumatized by the walk or the <laughs> no <laughs> or the traffic or anything else. Um, first of all, um, so the co-leadership thing. I've been meaning to uh, meaning to ask. We both actually want to ask this question. So was this your Al Pacino moment? Like you tried to get out and they just kept pulling you back in no, last I, fall. No, 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 not actually. I. I stepped down really, speaking of my daughter as I just was, um, especially because I was a single mom for virtually all her life. And I've only, I found my, my, my uh, love of my life at age 64. So John wasn't in the picture when my daughter, who'd been my rock and basically, I mean, I, I, you probably in the listening audience, you know, the scenario of a, a single mom with one daughter, you guys are close, right? And she was like, always had my back and she was part of every decision I made, including deciding to leave being executive director of the Sierra Club of Canada to run for leader of the Green Party in 2006, just part of every decision. And she just had watched, she'd been part of every campaign, uh, 2006 by-election, 2008 national, 
2011 national, 2015 national. And she said, mom, if you're going to go into the 2019 campaign again, you've got to promise me it's the last one. So I made that promise. I don't break promises. Then by, by 2019, I'm married to John who's saying, don't step down, honey. And I said, well, I, I have to. I promised Kate. So it wasn't about the usual political um cover story i want to spend more time with my family i just promised my daughter and so i stepped down and i had no intention of running for leader again and people weren't trying to pull me back in quite honestly some were but it wasn't a constant thing what what happened was uh, the awful awful constant reminder of the science on the climate crisis and april 4th 2022 I, the, uh, that particular sixth assessment of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change Report was released. And in my horror, I mean, I really was horrified because I know the science really well. And I thought the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change keeps saying, well, there's this pathway could maybe hold us to below 1 point or to 1.5 degrees. This pathway over here could keep us to below 2 degrees. Those are the the, the, the targets we adopted in the Paris Agreement, and they're not political targets, they're about survival or not, uh, not to get too deeply into the science. So suddenly on April 4th, 2022, sitting at my desk in the House of Commons, as I have been, I didn't leave Parliament, to my horror, read that the IPCC is now saying that to hold to 1.5 or 2, they've never put them together on the same page before, uh, global emissions must peak and begin to fall at the latest before 2025. And I read that sentence over and over again. And I started actually trying to figure out what do I do? So not to take you through all the thought process, the thought process included thinking I should leave parliament. I, I'm not effective anymore in here. This is, this is beyond emergency. All hands on deck, something different. And every time I talk to friends in the international climate movement or elsewhere, so what do I do? Uh, and not every friend agreed, but more and more people said, why are you asking us what you should do? You should run for leader of the Green Party. We need you back there. Uh, and that began to take root, but I knew I did not want to re-offer the same thing I'd been doing because, I, heck, I mean, I, I, it's not exactly sexism and ageism, but I could sense a Lisa Laflamme moment would come over me of people saying, what, the, the older lady's back again? You couldn't find anyone else? But a lot of friends of mine in the Global Greens movement, where we have over 400 elected members of parliament around the world in different countries, a lot of them operate as co-leaders. And the more I talk to friends globally, the more I realized that's what I would want. I don't want to do that same job over again. I'd like to try, and we still don't officially have the change in our constitution for co-leadership, but I didn't want to put my name forward to run for leader again for the Al Pacino moment. I wanted to be able to say this is going to be, and it is, it's genuinely different because Jonathan Pedno is extraordinary. He's right now running in the by-election in NDG Westmount. He's extraordinary. And same by-election, of course, same voting time as, as uh, Winnipeg South Center and Portage Lisgar. But anyway, uh, that was the process. And it was un as unexpected for me uh, as as it was, I suppose, for, for public that I would be coming back. But I, I just need to be effective, not because I'm political, but because I'm a grandmother. And this is this is a moral responsibility that I can't I can't shirk. I mean, 
Absolutely. Uh, we're going to I think we're going to get to the discussion around the what's affecting Manitoba and elsewhere, uh, forest fires and climate change. Uh, these are crucial issues, arguably. And I remember being on uh, another show, uh, a national show that uh, consistently and continually almost for three months, four months, uh, talked about the party and not in a good light. And, mm-hmm. and I think has uh, instilled or, or contributed to a general feeling in the public that the party after you left, uh, which was in a fairly healthy state, uh, was uh, had fundraising, uh, money in the bank, had mm-hmm. a, a strong slate of candidates, probably, you know, when, I think the highest amount of MPs at that time. And now uh, the party is in a much different scenario. Uh, since you left, there was the struggle for leadership with Adam A. Paul, and and then of course the great dis- uh, discord amongst the leadership, uh, the board, and so on. Yeah. Uh, we don't need to recount all of that, but but arguably you're really the only person that could have come back to uh, support this party to bring it back to uh, any sort of semblance of confidence. Uh, would you not agree? I mean, there are no. I can't agree. There must there there would have been probably other people if the party, but I mean, given the last couple of years, it's it's quite the case. When we'd had over a million votes in 2019, in 2021 we had inexplicably, and I've got to say, I, I still don't understand how it was allowed to happen. So many empty ridings. We had full slates since 2004, 2004, 2006, 2000, I mean, all those elections. Um, the party had less money and all of that. We'd always had full slates, but because of of having more than eighty uh, places where where voters had no chance to vote green, eighty ridings, uh, we felt we came perilously close to falling below two percent of the popular vote. We would have had those votes in those ridings, but we didn't have candidates to for people to vote for. So that was a, obviously a, a, a bad patch. We really are out of it. I think lots of people can rebuild, but there's nothing like rebuilding also again with being a team. And I am now a, you know, a, a 69-year-old white woman of privilege, et cetera. My partner is a 33-year-old, racialized, young, brilliant human rights activist. We come from different backgrounds. We see things we are remarkably aligned, and I think that creates a future for us that's different than than me. So the, you mentioned the 2019 election, which, you know, was a pretty remarkable performance by the Green Party. And, um, you know, like without going into too many of the details, and then things sort of fell apart. Um, internally, and then you also mentioned externally the uh the allure the party had for candidates and ultimately for voters so uh, i've always wondered if um you know whether this is an uh, an example of how success is its own burden um you know was the success of 2019 did it uh, you know in perhaps an ironic way did it actually contribute to the struggles in the leader's office, the struggles with internal sense of who the Green Party was, and then ultimately, you know, a, a, a less impressive electoral performance. I don't, honestly, Dan, I don't think so. I mean, if, you know, as, as uh, Nick Ahn was saying, when I left, we had just had the best election we'd ever had. We got over a million votes. 
We elected three MPs, and not just three MPs. Breakthrough parties in this country, if you think about it, and people often don't think about it, but breakthrough parties, are, where did the Bloc Quebecois come from? Where did Reform Party come from? Parties that started more recently than the Green Party, actually. We're now in our 40th year. So parties that are you know, more recent always start as regional splinter parties. That's how you get your base. First past the post voting rewards parties that are regionally grounded. That's how, heck, how could the Bloc Québécois, a separatist party, be the, Her Majesty's loyal opposition, the official opposition in Canada? Because of first past the post. But here we were in 2019 with an MP from New Brunswick, MPs from British Columbia, and still right now in Parliament. There's, there are only two of us, but heck, Mike Morris is Kitchener Centre, Ontario. I'm Saanich Gulf Islands, British Columbia. Our appeal and where we nearly win seats and where we come in second is all over the place. That's a national base that in any other voting system would have a greater, greater voice in Parliament. But what happened when I, I, I didn't think things could go sideways. I thought, this is set up for success. I've got such a good succession plan. Uh, and uh, sometimes, and this happened, we're not the only party where this is the case. Um, succession planning is really hard in politics, right? <laughs> so you think you're doing really well. Um, gosh, Jack Layton and then Tom Mulcair got eliminated by his party rather rapidly. I mean, the, the uh, heck, after Stephen Harper, you go to Andrew Scheer, then Aaron O'Toole, now Pierre Poilievre. Succession planning in our political system is particularly fraught. Not everybody is good at the job. The person who replaced me was, without lots of commentary, not good at the job. Uh, and that costs, and you have to rebuild. But the internal stuff, I think, got a bit, well, I mean, media was interested in any media leak, and there were some people who were enjoying media leaks. Um, that's over. We are a very, you know, we, we've held on to a remarkable and a remarkably loyal membership base, candidates, a strong volunteer base, and right now we are, you know, we are, we were, we are competing in the four by-elections that are for Monday, the nineteenth of June. Uh, Doug Hammerling, uh, we've got in Winnipeg South Center, Jonathan Pedno, obviously in Notre Dame Gas. Uh, and, and Nick running in, who is, of course, a wonderful candidate for the leadership for the Manitoba Greens. Uh, we're feeling very, um, well, not entirely uh, restored because our public reputation isn't where it should be. But internally, we're getting our act together. So I, I'm interested. I mean, <clears throat> I know that what grabs headlines in uh, national news media is not necessarily indicative of the you know, the, the, the tenor or the substance of, of public opinion. But it certainly does seem like extremists on the right side of the political spectrum are sucking a lot of oxygen out of the political debate right now in the country. Um, you know, the, the leader of the Conservative Party is just definitely taking his party farther to the right. And then you have the People's Party and, you know, which yeah. is kind of, I liken that to kind of the, like, don't blame me if I write about Maxine Bernier. It's a car wreck. Who doesn't like a car wreck? You know, you got to write about it. Um, but, you know, even so, it's made me wonder what impact 
the the rise in volume of extreme right-wing political rhetoric in this country, does that have an impact on the progressive elements in in the in the discussion, particularly the Green Party? Does that does that make do you think it'll make more people want to want to consider green, or does it draw like does it drive people back to safe centrist options? I guess I'm I don't I I, I know this may sound too high minded to be real, but my major my larger concern than the Green Party is Canadian democracy and democracies around the world right now because fascism is on the rise. One of the things that is destructive of democracy, which is why Vladimir Putin does it is the use of social media to foment uh, what we now call rage farming, good heavens. So I'm more concerned that Canada as a whole is still fragmented and more fractured and more polarized post-COVID than pre-COVID. I don't want to feel like I don't recognize my own country. So one of the hallmarks of being Canadian that I've always loved is that we always say we can disagree without being disagreeable. And that's the case for sure in how the Greens look at things, because around the world as well, where we make headway, and we're now in 11 governments around the world at the moment, where we serve on federal cabinets with prime ministers of other colors, but we are uh, very committed to cross-party cooperation and we're also very committed to the to healing a society that's fractured. So it is concerning that there's a rise in what we could call populism, although I associate populism as well with Tommy Douglas and, and it, the, the two don't fit together in my mind. But there's a deliberate fracturing for purposes of driving the algorithms to drive the kind of politics that is destructive of our mutual respect and shared caring for each other. And I think a, a return and a rise of the Green Party as what I, what I hope are at least the grown-ups in the room to say, no, come on, don't use language that divides. Don't be calling people out and saying, um, this group of people is, and then you attach a label to it. Let's calm down and listen to each other and figure out where our commonality is because fundamentally as Canadians, we mentioned briefly already in the show, the, the, the wildfires, we got to take care of each other. We got to be paying attention to oncoming, increasingly dangerous climate events that require of us that we pull together and take care of each other on the ground in neighborhoods, communities, and nationally and in parliament. So I'm hoping that that kind of conversation can happen. I'm, you know, it, it's it's alarming when people get pulled into kind of rabbit holes of extremism online that take people to places where they're no longer part of a healthy society, but undermining it. And there's no point demonizing those people. We have to figure out how do we talk to each other, how do we pull each other back from a brink, and act like the kind of Canadian family we really are. I think it's interesting that you're talking about acting like adults. Um, I had a, a debate with my sisters the other day uh, because, as usual, there's uh, this huge explosion of residential school denialism uh, that's consistently and continually attacking myself and my father uh, because we write very simple 
we were very, very simple pieces or state very simply, you know, believe survivors, uh, look at, listen to Indigenous communities, and most importantly, let's support communities that are uh, searching for their children, that are searching these unmarked graves or these um, these potential sites in their community. Let's get a fuller story of residential schools. We will be all better off as a result. But the debate of, with my sisters was, because uh, I, I, I choose to ignore this vitriol that I get from the former justice minister of Manitoba, who's just an ardent residential school denialist. Um, but the, the I don't I don't choose to to engage. And her she's her her position is is that you have to engage these sides of the political spectrum because ig- ignoring them is not working. I think a similar thing around climate change uh, would a similar debate would take place. Uh, we have a very strong amount of people in the country who don't see forest fires, floods in Manitoba, uh, hurricanes. And tornadoes that are happening in areas uh, that have never happened before uh, as related somehow to the issue of climate change and that we can still continue to burn fossil fuels and build as many pipelines as possible and build uh, dams all across Manitoba until the water is almost at a standstill. I mean, if we, we just are a few miles where Dan and I are sitting from Lake Winnipeg, where there is an over-algae bloom every single season because of the dams uh, that we use to enjoy electricity in Winnipeg. It's it's a very simple equation, but yet people want to deny that this is the facts. How do you uh, continually and consistently for decades now engage people who just refuse to outright believe, and some of them are provincial premiers? Yeah. Well, first of all... <sighs> Uh, it breaks my heart to imagine. I mean, even the phrase residential school denialism is just like a (laughs) stabs to the heart. You think, how would that be? But what we have in our society right now for the first time ever is a breakdown in uh, what we would say as lawyers going into a court case. I used to practice law, you know, let's, let's have, you know, uh, the, uh, the shared agreement on the facts. You go into a case, you've already said, okay, we can set this aside. We don't have to litigate this, 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 and this because we have a, a common understanding. Those are the things that happened. We used to have that. It wasn't that long ago that every Can- you know Canadians generally would suffer time news or before you go to bed, you'd watch Nolton Nash in the news. You didn't, nobody said Nolton Nash represents a, um, some sort of dangerous provocateur that's arguing only a government case. I mean, so the attack on CBC, the attack on our institutions, we now really are in a place where a lot of Canadians can look at the same things happening, but the news sources, some of them aren't news sources, some of them are propaganda sources. I think for me, what really matters is that we constantly keep the lines of communication open. So I work really hard at trying to find where's the place where I start a conversation with friends of mine who are conservative members of parliament. Number one, it's important to be able to say and mean it, friends of mine who are conservative politicians. When I come up against something where people, I don't, I think I'm with your sisters, you have to call it out and say, no, Jim McRae, this really happened. You know, if you think it didn't happen, let's unpack why you think that. And I don't want to yell at you about it, but this this is what happened. And if we pretend, try to pretend away the genocide of our history, how do we ever move forward? So unpacking it and trying to approach people who don't agree with us 
with a really big dose of compassion. So on the climate front, I, 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 I continually work on friends in the conservative caucus to make sure, and, and it is the case, that many, many more conservatives understand the climate crisis than talk about it publicly. And the more it hits their individual ridings, the more that I'm uh, of fellow MPs in British Columbia who went through losing hundreds of people in a couple of days to the heat dome and all the wildfires and then a few months later what the atmospheric rivers that took out major highways and did massive damage and killed people. I mean, people, I don't know how many of you in Manitoba know about this, but when we talk about farms lost in British Columbia because of the floods, you know, friends of my husband and mine, my husband for many years is, um, his, it was his mother's farm is, is in interior BC, quite near Lytton, a little town called Ashcroft. You know, family, friends who lost their farm, the river charted a new course. They had a seven-acre farm before the floods, and they have a four-acre farm. Three acres of land fell out and went into the river. People in Lytton are still paying the mortgage to the banks on homes they don't have because they burnt to the ground. They are still paying the mortgage so they can eventually rebuild a house there. The, the damage of all of this has changed a number of my conservative colleagues in Parliament. So again, it's 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 steady conversation. Um, and I'll just bookmark this because it's too long a conversation to fit in this podcast. But a brilliant Canadian scientist named Dr. Catherine Hayhoe, who actually teaches climate science in Texas, and her husband is an evangelical preacher in Texas. So talk about your missionary work, reaching out to people who don't necessarily see the light. She works in a, in a community that's really staunchly um, uh, a, a pro-fossil fuel community. And she's constantly, her book is called Saving Us. And she talks about how you talk to people. You start with, you don't start with throwing statistics at them. You don't start with, I'll never agree with you because you're, you know, uh, you're just wrong. You start with, can we, well, did you always enjoy fishing? Is it different now from what it was like when you were a kid? You start gentle. You start with something we can both agree on. Do you want to agree with me that God created the world? Do you agree with me that then creation's kind of important? Depending on who you're talking to, where you are, how you fit, um, uh, my, my, there's always a way as hard as it sounds, if, if you can reduce the volume and, and listen for a while, generally you can find something in common. And that's the horror of algorithms and social media and our split second temper, right? Somebody says something, we don't like it. Okay, I'm right and you're an idiot. That's actually the name of a book. <laughs> I'm right and you're an idiot. This, this is not a good way to have public discourse. And, and, listening and turning down the volume is pretty important. Yeah, I mean, I guess this would be a kind of macro micro uh, discussion as well, because I think there's a there's a there's a balance to strike, uh, because there are people who just simply will argue gravity doesn't exist. And uh, you can be exhausting to be the person who's engaging and trying to argue that simple, basic 
science. Like, like you just have to watch a, like you, you can hold as many stones up and drop them to say, see, gravity exists. And, and I guess what you're saying is that, you know, strategy is important, but it's also very heavy burden on those of us who are, who are, have other better things to do than, than to work with people who just simply are starting with the premise, which, which is that you're fake news, that I have nothing, that you have nothing meritorious to say, and that I've been taught that you're the enemy. And I think that's generally how indigenous peoples are, are still portrayed in the country. Um, when you see ministers who say things like, oh, uh, red tape, and it's really talking about treaty rights, you know. And yeah, that's a- I, w- I would absolutely say, okay, this is, this is so wrong for Indigenous people to have the burden of convincing uh, settler culture people who don't, who want to believe uh, fairy tales. That's mostly our job as settler culture people. I mean, the Jim McCrae's of this world, if, it, it, you know, let's just talk sensibly, what do we know? about why the residential schools were established. What do we know from historical evidence? What do we know from, from, oh my, I mean, there's so many examples of what is clear and uh, uh, incontrovertible. So starting with the incontrovertible stuff, um, it, it, it leads you to a place of being able to talk about what happened when indigenous kids in schools were put in the same rooms TB infected kids with healthy kids and that they knew that was happening at the time and refused to act on it. It what does it tell you when we have first-hand accounts? I mean in my obviously over and over again, but the burden should never be on indigenous people to convince uh the the uh, well, I hate to use the word denier because you fall right into holocaust denialism, but it's very similar. It's unpleasant so you want to believe it could not possibly have happened because it's too horrible to contemplate. It happened. The Holocaust happened. A cultural and actual genocide happened. A deliberate attempt, I mean, in the words of the people who are the architects of the system, to, yeah. to, to take the Indian out of the child. It's, it's not like you can deny that. And it didn't stop with residential schools, I don't need to tell you, but I'm, 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 I'm pretty, I mean, the, the 60s scoop stuff and yeah. the, our current day society of how many people are in solitary confinement in our prisons, mostly indigenous people. Well, why would that be, do we think, right? Well, this has we, to be called out. Yeah, the, I mean, the, the, the real issue is, could you use that argument for a climate change argument saying some basic premises? Uh, go ahead, Dan. Yeah, I was just going to say, um, well, first of all, like, I'm right and you're an idiot. Um, you, you indicated that, you know, we can't have discourse like that. And now I have to rethink my entire social media policy because that's essentially the only way I approach people I mean, on social author, media. The author yeah. of that book, so I'm not plagiarizing, is James Hogan. And it's a really okay. good book. And it's all about yeah. how we actually don't have conversation because no conversation starts with I'm right and you're an idiot. Um, no. That's that. Uh, uh, I'm I'm trying to be better every day, so that I'll start with that tomorrow. <laughs> the uh, um, but no, I, I think the the thing that uh, I'm sort of concerned about, and I'm certainly not flagging anything that's new, but in the political discourse, um, like we really haven't made a lot of progress in the last decade in discussing climate change as an existential threat, and but more importantly, how that translates into public policy. So. You know, you have uh, conservative premiers across the country who won't even say the words climate change. Uh, you have a federal conservative leader that wants to 
weaponize, uh, you know, the uh, uh, the carbon tax. Yeah. And and essentially, if I understand his argument correctly, it's ex- it's expensive and it's ineffective because it's not big enough. I don't know. But in a, in essence, we get like everybody saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, uh, there's a fire, and we need to put water on it. But we really don't like the design of your buckets. You yeah. know, so we can't. So, like, uh, I, you know, short of you're an idiot and stop, you're killing me. Um, how, how do we get closer to the same page in the political discourse? Well, I mean, you, you called out uh, Daniel Smith for not being able to talk about climate change in the middle of the province being on fire. Yeah, but neither could Rachel Notley. Right, you know? right. And then where does the media go in that election? You've got Rachel Notley and and um, Daniel Smith both studiously ignoring the reasons that the province is on fire. And you've got, I mean, the third party in the polling now way, way down. You've got the two at the very top yeah. duking it out in a two-party race. But the party polling third... Uh, the Green Party of Alberta actually has a leader who is a firefighter <laughs> who was actually speaking truth to fire and uninterval. You know, nobody, the media didn't say, isn't this interesting? The national media also, if you watch the CBC stories, CBC stories on, you know, landslides that are currently happening um, in Rwanda and so many people have died because of climate change. But when they covered the the fires in alberta they didn't want to mention climate change either no. and in parliament you mentioned climate change you give you say why you're politicizing the fires no i'm sorry the fires are occurring because for the last three decades successive governments have been kicking it down the road to get past their electoral cycle right. and they won't have to have accountability for the targets they picked this goes to stephen harper this goes, you know, as well as it goes to Jean Chrétien, as well as it goes to Justin Trudeau. But it's it's a it's it's not the political party brand that you want to demonize as much as what kind of system do we have that's incapable of not only thinking about future generations to the seventh generation, as in you know, in indigenous teachings of the Iroquois Confederacy. No, no we can't even think about our own kids through yeah. their normal lifespan. This is this is so. The closer the climate crisis gets to being personal and immediate, which is happening now, the less likely it is that the obfuscation can continue, because the vast majority of Canadians, in the order of eighty percent, have understood for decades that burning fossil fuels uh, is is creating you know climate change on steroids, weather on steroids, whatever, you, however you want to look yeah. at it, we are responsible for loading fuel on the fire of what our kids are going to have to experience. And we're running out of time to make sure our kids can experience it while being able to adapt. In my head, what I really want to know is that when my daughter, who's now 32, is my age, and there's something going on, she can pick up a phone, call 911, or whatever they have in those days. But that there'll be there'll be a structure of our society that can take care of each other because that's what's at risk. It's not an environmental threat; yeah. it's a security threat. I, I think the um, and Nigan and I have talked on this, uh, you know, in other episodes. But um, you know, I was kind of shocked at the amount of attention 
that legitimate, what I consider to be legitimate news organizations spent trying to explain the connection between climate change and the wildfires. And, uh, you know, like I, I look up, a, there was a BBC story. I'm a big fan of the BBC, uh, you know, uh, as a news organization. You know, did climate change cause Canada's wildfires? And really, like, it's this is a paragraph in a story. It's not a whole story. Wildfires are naturally occurring phenomena. They are bigger. Uh, they cover more land and more numerous because of climate change. And I, I'm not... So when I weep uh, for the state of political discourse, I'm weeping as well, in part for the state of modern journalism. If we really, I don't know, do, maybe do we actually have to keep it? Maybe we do have to keep explaining that. We, well, and if you compare Canadian coverage of fires with Australian coverage or other countries, no question, our news media has not recovered from the Harper area era yet. There's a couple of different factors, of course, the, the rise of social media, mainstream journalism, the loss of major papers. I mean, you can go back and look at it. So journalism has a whole bunch of factors that are making it harder to actually cover the news. But we're also a country that self-censors one hell of a lot. Um, during when, when John Baird was Minister of Environment, so 2006, 2007, you had a, an edict from the minister's office that Environment Canada scientists weren't allowed to talk to media anymore. Well, guess what? Since, since Trudeau came in in 2015, the Environment Canada scientists are mostly gone and those guys didn't hire any back. So you still have a situation where, and reporters do tend to self-censor. And it isn't that, you know, it is easy to find people who will explain it to you, but, and I don't mean to you, Dan, to you again, but... The, oh, the, explain news, away. Uh, yeah. Journalism in this country is is rather uh, um, a big factor in the problem of how we get people to be able to face the reality of the climate crisis without despair and with the kind of uh, mobilized uh, public outrage that says, God, you, hello, you guys. Um, you can't, Justin Trudeau, claim to be a climate leader and buy a pipeline and spend $30 billion of our money to build it. Hello. And you can't, uh, Pierre Poiliev, pretend. I mean, he, he, the other day he gave a four-hour speech. The only time he uses the word fire is when he wants to fire David Johnson. I mean, the, the, there's a, a disconnect <laughs> to reality that you think, God, guys, you, you, the public is way, way, way ahead of you here. So it needs explaining because for one reason, well, the worse the climate crisis gets, uh, and I go right down to the nitty-gritty community reality, every community that goes through a serious climate event, whether it's a flood, Hurricane Fiona, a fire, big windstorm, several things happen all at once. Generally, you lose power, you lose your landlines, and you lose your cell phone coverage. This country is woefully at, at the basic level of how do you save people in community. We're quite unprepared for what we need to do. So that should be a reason to mobilize and bring people together at a community level. One of one part of my writing, by the way, it's just phenomenal. Salt Spring Island is 10,000 people, but it has every single part of the community mapped and connected for people to take care of their neighbors and with ham radio operators working as volunteers prepared to tell people. Like when the people had to leave Lytton in, in, uh, uh, on July 1st, 2021, 
they drove out of town not knowing if they were driving into a fire or away from a fire because they had no information. So there's that level of how we have to mobilize now and where we put our resources. And we have to make sure that we stop being, as a country, one of the worst polluters on earth. And we have this fairy tale that a lot of people are prepared to believe, and Justin Trudeau says it all the time, that we're climate leaders. No, we aren't. <laughs> we have the worst <laughs> record of any G7 country. But, uh, you know, we're lovely people, mostly. We're good people, but that doesn't mean we have a good climate record. The media could help us so much if it would have, you know, like it, the example I just used, if during the, the election campaign in Alberta, anyone at the national media had decided, let's put a microphone in front of Jordan Wilkie, leader of the Green Party of Alberta, articulate, brilliant firefighter, and find out what he has to say. We, we, we got time for one more question here. Um, and I don't want to end on uh, hopelessness. So maybe I'm, I'm assuming in your optimistic glass half full way of seeing uh, that you'll turn this around. But uh, we're in the midst yesterday, uh, not so much today, but yesterday, uh, Winnipeg was engulfed in smoke. And like most Canadian cities over the past few weeks, uh, particularly on the East Coast in Alberta, I mean, we're spreading all the way to New York and uh, on the cover of newspapers in New York saying Canada's to blame for these smoke in New York, which is absolutely insane and, and makes no sense at all. Uh, you'd think that that would mobilize. You th you'd think that you, you're talking about mobilization. I mean, um, so many First Nations communities are mobilized uh, to address political issues because of crises. Like um, often, you'll often see this with uh, the lack of a winter road. The entire community, people will die and then the entire community will get behind forcing the government, doing sit-ins, doing uh, major political mobilization, letter-writing campaigns, uh, doing marches all the way to downtown in the city here uh, to demand a winter road. If, as just one example, and you see that also with demanding ring dikes for communities and so on and so forth. You would think that all of these things that are happening would mobilize people, but yet people are willing to believe what you said to be rage farming or or fake news or whatever else we want to call it in social media worlds or in media worlds too, mainstream media world. Uh, what will it take or what do you think is the tipping point for people to mobilize on the issue of climate change? And I would like to believe that it's do the right thing as you said, or, or reasoned arguments. That doesn't seem to be working, though. Well, I think people are mobilized. I mean, well, the awareness level and the connection. I mean, a lot of people who would have a year ago, even colleagues in Parliament said, oh, poo-poo, ah, that's not climate change. They don't, they don't say it anymore. The, 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 the MPs whose areas were hit with Hurricane Fiona are different people than what they were before Hurricane Fiona. The people, and uh, the worst part of what I'm going to say which is from the briefings that we've gotten from the Emer Minister for Emergency Preparedness, Bill Blair, at the best science Canada has at the national level. And this is in briefings shared with all party leaders. I mean, this is a Zoom meeting. Pierre Poiliev's in the room. This isn't going to get any better for the rest of this summer. It's going to be hot and dry. And on top of where we are right now and what you're experiencing, what we're experiencing in BC, eight Canadian provinces and the Northwest Territories have fires and this, the rest of the summer doesn't get better. 
So I think this is going to be a moment of, of awareness, of shifting, because we have time to save ourselves, but not much. If that, and I do, again, to the hopeful part, hear the first part of what I said. We have time to save ourselves. And we have time as Canadians to be, and for Canada, to play our what I what we used to be. We were on the ozone protocol. We saved the ozone layer. That saved life on Earth. That's not an exaggeration. We can be the kind of country that steps up like and and well, I mean, Lester B. Pearson won the Nobel Peace Prize for creating peacekeepers. We can be saviors. We can we can be the people we were waiting for. But only if we get past the paralysis that comes from understanding enough science to know that we're in desperate trouble and then tuning out because it's too scary. We have to say, we actually can do this. We have to actually stop building the Trans Mountain Pipeline at a cost of $30 billion. Let's take all that crown corporation we've just created and get all that heavy moving equipment that we've bought and all those great guys that are doing the work and say, okay, now you're building fire breaks. Now we're going to take the places that are really vulnerable to atmospheric rivers. We're going to put in culverts before we lose the roads. We're going to build out. We're going to, we're going to get resilience as a job creator. Number one, it's, it, there's nothing like resilience and building in energy efficiency and, and creating a grid that works east-west. We've got grids that work like Manitoba Hydro sells the United States. Manitoba Hydro can't sell to Ontario. Manitoba Hydro, we've really got to build out like a country and think like a country and not just save ourselves, but concentrate on what do we do as one group of humans in a family of humans that have to think like earthlings. <laughs> what are we if not earthlings? There's, so we've got to actually, I think it's a hopeful message that the values, okay, so the values that take us to doom really come down to selfish individualism. The approach that, and again, indigenizing our culture and our society, going back to wishing we had more heroes like Dr. Peter Bryce who are recognized and fewer people who ignored the crisis as it was happening of kids. I mean, Dr. Peter Bryce, for listeners who don't know the name, I mean, a real hero in advocating a long time ago that, that we had to pay attention to what was happening to indigenous children who'd been taken away from their families. But we, we do have Canadian heroes we can focus on, and we have a good story in the midst of, of horrors. Uh, we have to be the people who came to save ourselves, which means we have to speak truth to power. We have to also say as citizens in a democracy, this is not the time to tune out. The news may be bad. Don't turn it off. Get yourself involved in changing what you hear on the news so that we're actually telling the story of how we as a country became 100% renewable energy and did it while improving our economic situation. We have to stop listening to the lies of the people who make billions out of sacrificing our children's very future. Why do we listen to billionaire liars anymore? They kind of have a track record, you know? So let's not listen to them anymore. Okay, so I'm assuming that was a rhetorical question. So it's, it's always <laughs> that's always a good way to end the podcast on a provocative rhetorical question. 
Um, Elizabeth May, you've been a really good egg uh, agreeing to do uh, this chat, uh, which uh, clearly we could go on forever. We could always go on forever. And, uh, uh, you know, the podcast universe allows us to do that. But uh, we should probably wrap up now uh, by saying uh, thank you. Um, I know the people who work on the are working on the by-election campaigns in Manitoba would like to thank you for taking the time out to visit uh, Manitoba recently. I'm sorry we didn't get to do this in person. Uh, Me but too. We'll, we'll and a shout out to Nick Gaddart because I know I just yeah. said Nick before. Nick and Doug, God love you. Well, uh, we'll all be watching uh, next week's results. And uh, in the lead, because uh, you're going to be around whenever the next federal election takes place. You will be a candidate in that election, I understand. No doubt about it. And okay. n- and now that I'm all married up and I've got a John Kidder just says, no, you go, honey, don't stop. I, you know, I'm young. I'm only 69. I got, I got, I got years on me. Do any, do, do any of your guests end the show by saying hi ho silver? I know probably not. Well, f- first of all, it's hot. We, as we learned through painful experience, it's hi yo. Oh, sorry. So, no, no, no. I made the same mistake uh, and was uh, thrashed by the Lone Ranger aficionados <laughs> in our midst. Uh, but uh, if you, you know what, if you want to do a high yo, go no, for I it. I just say, I just wanted to say, who was that masked man? I wanted to thank him. <laughs> that was <laughs> that's well a COVID played. joke. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for being on the podcast. And uh, and like I said, it's uh, just a real honor to spend this time with you. And uh, you've been in the trenches for such a long time. Uh, I think a lot of people can learn from uh, the patience and the strategies that you have to deal with, I think, one of the most pressing issues of our time. So miigwech to you. Miigwech, chi miigwech, and God bless you. All right. Uh, well, that's our feature interview with Elizabeth May. Uh, really fascinating time that we spent with her. And she was so generous. That could have went on for quite a long time. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think one of the fortunate parts about doing the podcast is, like, we haven't interviewed a lot of uninteresting people. And we almost always conclude that we could go much longer uh, than we actually do, which is kind of means, you know, we're having a good time. Uh, so, uh, yeah. Uh, and... I, one uh, uh, quick uh, editorial note. So that, that interview uh, took place just shortly before the federal by-elections on June the 19th. And um, uh, Elizabeth mentioned uh, her co-leader, well, technically deputy leader, but co-leader, Jonathan Pedno, who uh, ran in uh, Notre Dame de Grasse Westmount and did not win uh, that election, uh, that by-election. Uh, so... Uh, there's probably going to be a little bit of hard decision-making now about what to do about the co-leadership that she entered into, uh, Elizabeth May and, and, uh, and her deputy leader. So, uh, but, you know, there should be a federally, uh, federal election probably, well, 18 months, sometime within the next 18 months. Uh, soon enough anyways. And, and mm-hmm. I mean, of course, the other update out of that is Maxime Bernier did not win his mm-hmm. Uh, attempt in Portage Liscar, uh, Brandon Leslie from the Conservatives hand, held that rather handily, but uh, Maxime Bernier did get 17% in the vote, and that's notable. Uh, also, Ben Carr won in the Winnipeg South Centre, riding rather expectedly, but following in his father's footsteps. And uh, I sent a text message over to Ben. I've known him since he was a student uh, of mine over there in Kelvin High School back in the day. 
And I said, congratulations. And I think he's very excited to be able to take up that mantle. But uh, without further ado, I don't know if someone's uh, aware, but uh, this podcast is being uploaded slightly later this week mm-hmm. uh, because Dan and I, amongst our colleagues, uh, a full force at the Winnipeg Free Press, have uh, been in- enveloped in this 24-hour project, uh, which has studied sort of a-, a day in the life of Winnipeg's downtown. Um, yeah. I- I got three to four in the morning and I covered Air Canada Park. And I understand you covered from 12 from midnight to 1 a.m. Well, 1 a.m. to 2 a.m. I rode, uh, I did a tour of duty, part part tour of duty with a, um, uh, a je- deputy paramedic chief uh, in the downtown core uh, watching the uh, Winnipeg Fire and Paramedic Service in action attending to uh, the needs of people in that area. And uh, mine was pretty fascinating. Um, yours, yeah? Oh, I mean, it, it was, I expected it to be fascinating. I expected it to be very interesting. Uh, but I sat in a circle in an encampment uh, from 4 to 5 a.m. Uh, at Air Canada Park, which is in downtown. And um, and I had uh, photographer John Woods with me, and I had uh, members of the Downtown Community Safety Partnership, which we've talked about in the past of the pod. Uh, really interesting hour. And so if you get a chance, uh, uh, everybody who's fans of the free press, take keep your eye out for 49.8, which is our weekend feature, uh, which will be the coverage of our 24-hour story covering the Winnipeg's downtown. It's forthcoming in the free press. And uh, big thanks to everybody at CJNU for continuing to commit and produce this, our producer, Adam. Uh, thanks to everybody at the Free Press, Paul Simon, editor, Wanda Swatsky, uh, when, sorry, Wendy Swatsky. Yeah, yeah uh, uh, Wanda is going to be very upset that she got drawn into the into the Wendy podcast production. Swatsky, who, <laughs> yeah. of course, does great work uh, uploading. This may actually never be uploaded now. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, she has the power to spike this baby. So. But, uh, Big thanks to everybody, of course, and uh, thanks to everybody for listening this week.